In 2005, I was 14 years old, and I didn't grasp the concept of buying tickets online. So my parents drove me to Regal Lloyd Center 10 on Northeast Multnomah in Portland, Oregon, where I bought two tickets for the 7 p.m. showing of Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith, on May 19th. Like a groom-to-be placing wedding rings in a jeweled box for safekeeping, I tenderly stuck the tickets inside a small white envelope. When I finally went to see the movie, I was accompanied by my mother, who had gamely sat through Attack of the Clones with me at the Moreland Theater three years earlier. Even though there had been a midnight showing Avenge of the Sith the night before, the crowd was vast, and it included one movie dressed in a beautifully accurate Stormtrooper costume and another outfitted as one of the Emperor's royal guards. When a heckler blazed through the scene, they remained impassive behind their masks. Armed with popcorn and coke, I took my seat, never considering that what I was about to witness would disappoint. I had yet to fall out of love with episodes one and two. At the time, the coolness of pod racing, Darth Maul, and Jango Fett casually twirling a silver pistol still outweighed abominations like actors not named Ian McDermott saying words in a Star Wars prequel. But I did leave the theater disappointed, just not for the reason you would expect. Welcome to Bespin Ice Cream Stand. I'm Josh O'Rourke, and with me as always, with powers that have doubled since we last met, Bennett Campbell Ferguson. <laughs> Hello! I, uh, I, I continue to be dazzled, Josh, by these, uh, th- these opening references, because I feel like you, you always like pick ones that I'm particularly fond of, because for me, like that's <laughs> one of the high points, honestly, not just in the prequels, but all of Star Wars, you know, hearing Hayden Christensen saying, my powers have doubled since we last met count, because he actually sounds kind of badass, which is really a miracle, frankly. <laughs> I mean, that's why I went for it. I, I would say I look, I, 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 I spend more time on that part than any other part of the podcast, which <laughs> might be telling. <laughs> um, out of the gate, my star rating for Revenge of the Sith is two and a half stars. I think of the three movies, it's the most coherent. Uh, I, I think thematically, a lot of what they're trying to do works. Uh, and obviously, I have problems with it. But um, I think overall, it's the most watchable of the three. As far as from beginning to end, it kind of holds my interest, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, this is uh, this is tricky for me because, like, my my heart wants to graded on a curve because like there's you know there's a part of me that always wants to grade star wars on a curve but my my brain knows that that would uh, betray everything i supposedly stand for not to <laughs> get too highfalutin <laughs> about it so i mean i i actually have to go for gonna go for the same exact star rating i have to say two and a half as well i mean for, for me what, what elevates it that high is it it is a great story i mean it's a really you know, potent tale of a a man who is uh, undone by selfishness and and hubris and 
unleashes a genocide as a result. I mean, it's incredibly difficult, uh, challenging, powerful stuff. And, and, a, and a lot of points, it's really, really beautifully told, you know, some of the, the visuals, I mean, you know, Coruscant at, at sunset with the, you know, the, the warm yellow light, you know, glancing off the skyscrapers. I mean, some of this stuff is absolutely just heavenly. I think for what me, for me, what keeps it from getting to like three stars is that this is maybe like the most digitally overloaded uh, Star Wars prequel yet. Like, I feel like the Phantom Menace, you know, for all the CGI, the Phantom Menace still had like, like real grit and, uh, and texture. And you, you felt like Tatooine and Naboo were real places. And, and in this, in Sith, you know, we're going into like full video game lava. And, and then unbelievably, at some points, the acting actually reaches, like, I think, all-time lows, which is really saying something, you know, after episodes one and two. I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about Natalie Portman at, at some point during this episode, uh, but I, I really only have one word to say about that now. Ouch. You know, or that performance, I mean. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, no, no, it's a good point. I feel like the action I don't care about because it, it's easy to just glance over it with all the digital stuff going on. Absolutely. And yeah, obviously the acting is my favorite uh, in the world. <laughs> Though, um, uh, I think Attack of the Clones still it takes the acting cake for me as far as uh, shit cakes go. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's pretty... Uh, it, it's, uh, it, it's, it's pretty hard to like, uh, like beat, you know... Like, I don't like sand, you know, it's rough and coarse and irritating, you know, that's a, that's a tough act to follow. Although I, I think, uh, I think Anakin, you're breaking my heart, you know, is a, is a pretty strong contender for a low light of this, uh, yeah, Lake of the show don't tell. <laughs> well, um, I was hoping we could talk about George Lucas, uh, particularly in the context of the prequel trilogy. Uh, my, my main question to you, and this is a large question, don't feel obligated to answer it all, you know, right now, but um, what did George Lucas set out to do versus what the fans wanted? Um, and then my, my follow-up is, was George too worried about what fans wanted to make the right movie? The sort of, you know, if you make a movie for everyone, you're making a movie for nobody uh, argument? I mean, I mean, first of all, like, I think what it comes down to is the fans have no idea what they want. I mean, the truth is, uh, you know, it, like, it's it's easy to talk about the fans as like a single entity. And I, and I often, you know, fall into doing that myself. But, you know, the, the truth is, I mean, like, Star Wars fans are, are, are like their own country. And in fact, arguably, when you count like all the Star Wars fans around the world, you know, population of the fan community is probably bigger than a great number of countries and i feel like like any nation you know we have our our different factions we have our different you know political parties and agendas and i i feel like every you know faction of the star wars uh uh saga you know fan group like doesn't really know what they want ultimately i think I think we often think we know, and then 
we don't like i think you know after the the force awakens you know there was a feeling of you know wow a lot of great things in that movie but we wish maybe you know like a you know we could get a movie that would take some more risks and then the last jedi um uh took some risks and we were like yikes not those risks (laughs) not not so many risks (laughs) as far as like you know george lucas i you know i could be wrong but my impression is that george lucas genuinely does not care what fans think like i think he is is totally an army of one i think uh I, i think star wars is intensely personal to him i think he's he's very much you know focused on on his vision and i think you know what his vision was was i mean he he basically said this you know in an interview in premiere way back in 2005 you know when revenge of the sith came out you know he basically said i want to make a movie about a nine-year-old boy and then i want to make a a romance and then i want to make the movie about how darth vader is born which is a basically another way of saying you know i I want to make a, a children's film and then i want to make a a love a romance uh movie and then i want to make a movie that's basically the cinematic equivalent of a a shakespearean tragedy and i i think he 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 did that he succeeded in doing that the problem is like with 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 not with with aim more with with execution i mean like you know all of those things are perfectly you know uh, worthy approaches it's just he did not you know execute them well you know he had the he had the wrong cast he had the the or maybe he had the right cast just with the wrong dialogue and kind of the his own inability to you know guide the actors to to give the best performances possible i feel like the dialogue isn't really doing anyone any favors either um because we know these actors are good actors or can be good actors for sure Yes. Yeah, I, I think I think Obi Wan to me is is like the biggest tragedy because I think his dialogue is so just like telling and and there's not subtlety to it. Um, it's like everything George Lucas felt about these characters, the character has to say out loud, kind of. Not just Obi Wan, but other characters. Um, and so that was a big bummer for me, like big time. But yeah, getting back to the George Lucas thing. Um, yeah, I, I think you're right. I, I, I do think he kind of set out to make the kind of movie he wanted to make and in his mind succeeded. Um, I I do think he course corrected, though, after episode one and after episode two. I feel like particularly after Phantom Menace, he sort of uh, had to have gotten flack or, or criticism that made him steer the movies uh, maybe a different direction, even if the main story was the same. Yeah, you know, I I wonder because uh, it, I wonder like what his perception is because I know that you know his his attitude at least publicly was he felt that the prequels were actually better than the originals, which of course to us just seems absolutely bonkers. But but I mean you know he is uh, I mean he is an odd guy. You know he is to some degree kind of a reclusive guy. I mean it's it's very hard to know uh like what his uh where his where where is like you know like feelings actually lie and i i think like i i, I want to go go back to like what you were saying josh about you know him course correcting a bit because i i, I you know d- despite what i said earlier about him like not 
caring what the fans think. I, I actually think, you know, like they're like what you're saying is right. And that there is evidence of that. I mean, like sh- surely if Jar Jar Binks had become a fan favorite, you know, Jar Jar would have, uh, you know, had a, a much, a much bigger role in two and three. I think uh, though, like George Lucas has like kind of a, a, a funny attitude of like, you know, sort of, like, like he's kind of, he's kind of like, like John McCain, you know, and, and like where he like wants to, <laughs> like, like John McCain, like was like known for like, kind of like being a maverick, but like sometimes he would kind of like acquiesce to the, the demands of the Republican party, but, but kind of, you know, telegraphed that he wasn't happy about it. So I, I think, uh, you know, like George Lucas was like a bit, a bit like that with Jar Jar, like, well, you know, I get, I now have to, you know, downsize his role, but he's still going to be in there. You know, I'm not backing down completely. <laughs> I I always sort of play the game of what would have happened to George Lucas if Star Wars wasn't a success? You know, well, after THX 1138, after American Graffiti, the Star Wars and it's a flop. What's he going to do next? I always kind of wondered that because I feel like, uh, you know, everyone's used this term, but Lucas is sort of a victim of his own success. Uh, and I really wonder if Star Wars wasn't the thing it is now, would he continue making like smaller movies? Would he stop making movies? I mean, for one thing, there would be no Lucasfilm. I mean, Lucasfilm as it existed very likely would have fallen completely apart. Uh, Industrial Light and Magic likely would have fallen completely apart. So the the domino effect on the industry, you know, would have been, been huge. You know, if, if not for Star Wars, if, if Star Wars had failed commercially, not only would have there have been no more Star Wars films, there would have been probably no Indiana Jones films. Like, I think, uh, I think he may have gone back to films more like THX, you know, films that were uh, a little, a little cheaper, a little weirder films where if he, he failed, no one would care as much, you know, films that would be mm-hmm. expected to fail anyway. Or, you know, I mean, uh, like in this scenario, assuming that, you know, the Godfather is still successful, you know, maybe George Lucas goes crawling back to Francis Ford Coppola and asks, you know, him to, you know, like uh, put in a good word for him and, you know, bankroll some higher profile project, in which case, you know, you know, Lucas goes from being instead of a captain of industry to, again, being a Padawan all over again. I mean, just, I mean, let's face it. I think, uh, I think, you know, like cinema, frankly, would be different, you know, in that scenario. And and I don't know even necessarily if he would have wanted to direct again. I mean, already, you know, A New Hope was a pretty demoralizing movie for him to make in spite of its success. So, so maybe he would have, you know, like got into more the the producer side of it. I mean, like for all we know, like he might've run a studio for something. It's the possibility. Yeah. I, I always imagine him being sort of a behind-the-scenes guy, uh, definitely a producer, especially with all the connections he has to you know Spielberg, and uh, you know Brian De Palma, yes, and um, Coppola and all those guys. Well, actually, just those guys. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I I always just wonder that because like all all of his non-Star Wars movies, I do enjoy to some degree. I I, I think I I think what I was trying to get at, which I, I think you touched on is how much he has affected cinema for good or, you know, for better and for worse. Um, but it does to me seem like he was 
as excited about technology as story. And the prequel trilogy is sort of evidence of that. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. But yeah, I, um, you know, good guy, good guy. <laughs> That's really all I got for, for George, yeah. Do you mind if I go on like a, a sort of a, 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 a Lucas tangent just for a sec? Yeah, please. I wanted to kind of like briefly go to like what I talked about in the the cold open, like a kind of like my experience as a as a, a kid seeing Revenge of the Sith, and and I want to just really quickly read a a part of an article that A. O. Scott wrote in the New York Times in two thousand five, and he talked about taking his son to Revenge of the Sith and that experience, and there was a I don't know, there's some things that I relate to here that I think are important. So this is this is the passage. Um, real quick, just for some background. Um... What was A.O. Scott's view on the first two movies? Uh, he hated them. <laughs> okay, that, that, that's my recollection. Anyway, just yeah, wanted or to at get least, an idea. I, well, he actually, you know, I should say, like, I think he only reviewed uh, uh, Clones and Sith. I know he hated Clones. He actually liked Revenge of the Sith. I I assume given his hatred of Clones, he, he hated uh, Menace as well, which, but I he didn't actually write a full review, so I'm not sure exactly where, you know. Maybe he's like a closet Phantom Menace fan, but <laughs> loves those podcast racers. <laughs> I'm sorry to interrupt. I just I thought it'd be good to give a little context. No, absolutely, it's all good. After I took my nine year old and a friend of his to see Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith last spring, for example, they kept coming back to the awful final battle, in which Anakin Skywalker's limbs are severed and his face horribly burned. This was a more intimate kind of violence than they were used to encountering and they needed to make sense of its place in the movie's narrative. They were disturbed as well as fascinated, and what fascinated me was how seriously they took the scene, which is a grisly confirmation of Anakin's transformation into Darth Vader and a punishment for his allegiance to the dark side. In some ways, I wish that George Lucas and I had spared them such a gruesome spectacle, but at the same time, their reaction to it confirmed the integrity of Mr. Lucas's story. So I just bring that up because, uh, you know, like Revenge of the Sith was a really formative movie because, you know, when I saw it when I was 14 years old, it was up to that point the most disturbing movie I had ever seen. I mean, that that movie, you know, practically gave me nightmares. It was so haunting at the time. I mean, that scene where uh, where Anakin uh, kills Newt Gunray and, you know, Newt says, you know, please, you know, Lord Sidious... Uh, promised us peace like those those words just like chilled me to the bone and i have to be honest like when i i first saw the movie the, the reason i didn't like it you know wasn't because of the bad acting or the bad dialogue or any of that crap the reason i didn't like it was because it, it's so completely you know horrified me that i i just like kind of bristled against the movie and uh like i do like have some you know trepidation of you know like making a movie for for children and it is for children i mean or, or at least partly for children it's it's for a general audience that's that's that you know disturbing but at the same time with time i've uh i've come to you know kind of admire the ballsiness of you know george lucas making a movie that that challenges an audience and especially a young audience because you know most movies for kids you know really really pander to them and you know you know kind of uh preach a lot of phony, you know, life lessons about togetherness and family, blah, 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 you know, 
And so, you know, I, I admire that aspect a bit more now. And so I think it's, I just wanted to bring up kind of the odd contradiction of, you know, like when I was a kid that, you know, I, I didn't like it for, you know, any reason, you know, because of the movies. or I didn't dislike it for any like aesthetic reason. It, it was totally an emotional gut reaction. And now I think it's like, a, you know, having gotten, you know, frankly, a little bit more desensitized and a little bit more jaded, you know, my, I am more focused on the bad acting and the, the bad writing and the fact that the special effects seem like, uh, like overkill, but, but I've kind of like always, you know, held on to that memory of that first reaction because I, I, I think that was, you know, in, that, that was, you know, important and it was, you know, it was real and it meant something to me at the time. I mean, which, I mean, I've, I know you were obviously older than me when you saw it, Josh, but like, was that, I mean, was that like it all like shocking at you at, at the, the violence in the movie, like at the time for seeing it, because it was a new level of brutality for, for star Wars, I think. Yeah. That, that was the first one that was PG 13, right? It, it was. Yeah. 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 My memory of that was being like, Oh, we're going to see some shit. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, Oh, they're going to hack off limbs left and right. Heads <laughs> roll. <laughs> um, I, no, it wasn't as shocking or as formative for me. Um, but, but it was certainly violent, particularly the, the sort of end Anakin Obi-Wan fight once Obi-Wan's won. For me, it wasn't jarring just because there was so much, there's still so much death in all the star Wars movies to some degree. Uh, though it's obviously softened quite a bit. Sure. Um, that actually is um, kind of funny because my, my other topic I really wanted to get into uh, was tone. Mm. And uh, I, I would love to talk about that, of course. But but to answer your question, no, I, I don't think it really um, affected me the way it affected you. But it, it certainly was a tonal shift uh, in the scheme of things. I, I felt, I don't even want to say out of place, but it seems like Revenge of the Sith uh, is almost like two movies in the sense of like before and after Anakin's uh, descent into darkness. Yeah. I, I don't know if you can you know, so cleanly split the movie up that way, but it does seem a little jarring uh, watching them or, you know, watching the movie again. And, and obviously everyone knows what's going to happen other than, you know, the Jedi or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the audience obviously, you know, knows what's going to happen, but uh, yeah, it's, uh, I, I like that they go for the level of violence that they do and that they sort of show like, this is what had to happen to create Darth Vader this is the baggage that Darth Vader has. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think especially now, like when you compare this movie to the, you know, the most recent star Wars films and, and the newer films look so just unbelievably tame by comparison. I mean, you know, revenge of the Sith is that a, a, is a movie that wants you to feel something, you know, it, it wants you to go on this journey where this uh, you're, you're with this guy we've watched grow up from a, little boy who was very innocent and you know at least on the surface very selfless you know see him become a a monster not only that see him you know become a, a man who uh who murders young children i mean it's it, it's quite a thing to be exposed to i mean you 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 have to like admire the the guts and and you i mean i think that uh you know like it reminds me of like this new yorker profile of a. Uh, of Darren Aronofsky, where um, 
you know, they, they talk about how like he doesn't, uh, he doesn't like, you know, scores from test screenings. And he, he said, uh, he said, I don't give a fuck about the scores. My films are outside the scores, <laughs> which, you know, it's, it's, it's really kind of a, a dickish thing to say. But, but on the other hand, like, like Aronofsky, who, uh, by the way, is, you know, I, I joke about him, but he is one of my favorite filmmakers working today. You know, he has a, I, I think, a deeply held belief that, uh, like, entertainment should not always go down easy. That that part of them, um, uh, you, you know, enter that to be entertaining. Sometimes you have to, you know, make an audience slightly uncomfortable. You know, like, I mean, as as much as like, you know, sex is not always like, you know, nice and vanilla. Entertainment isn't either. And I, I think, you know, you know, Revenge of the Sith deserves a lot of uh, a lot of credit for, you know, being, you know, a bit, uh, you know, like barbaric and, and tough in, in places and being willing to, uh, you know, shake people up. And quite frankly, it was the last Star Wars movie to do that, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think that's definitely fair. You know, we talked about Force Awakens being super safe and uh, obviously uh, the prequel trilogy, or at least the first two. Um are our sort of general audience um, aware, I guess. Um, but no, I, I'm with you. Fuck scores. I think if a real artist or whatever, <laughs> you know, a filmmaker, um, should set out to do what they want to do. And I think if people don't like your movie uh, and it's not universal, maybe you're doing something right. Uh, it doesn't have to be shocking necessarily, but I think that that it's... Films, really, really interesting films can be divisive uh, where people love or hate it. And I think that's awesome. And I think Aronofsky is is definitely a crucial figure in that kind of filmmaking. Yeah. For better or for worse as far as his films go. Well, you know what comes next? We need to get, you know, Darren Aronofsky, uh, you know, making a a Star Wars film where like the, the, the whole uh, <laughs> the whole movie is like Daisy Ridley quarantined in like a rundown apartment on Coruscant and she's like, you know, tripping out on uh, like uh, death sticks or <laughs> something. I would not watch that one. I, I that would be a direct to Disney Plus uh, situation. <laughs> no, um, I mean, to get us back on track, um, I, I, I think that, that it is... Um, a, a positive that that the film is is more violent than the other ones, and it should be. I think that the kids watching it grew up with it. You know, six years after Phantom Menace, I mean, yeah, if you watch it when you're four years old, you might be scarred for life. But I, I think you were like the perfect age for that, where you grew up with it, and as you grew up, you had a better understanding. And and even though it shocked you, uh, I, I still think you might have learned something. Or, or at least it might have hit certain emotional chords, you know? Yeah, no, it's, it, it's, it's so, it's so true. You know, I mean, it was really, uh, I, I think that, you know, even though it was a tough experience, it was an, it was an important experience. You know, it was a, I think it was, I think it was a, I think it was a, a challenging experience. And, you know, I, I think, uh, I think it's a testament to the, the fact that this is, you know, the one you know film in the the prequels that is a uh, is 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 really you know is really trying to you know do something you know worthwhile and that's a uh, that's nothing to sneeze at. 
ultimately. Um, I, I always play this game, but what if uh, Revenge of the Sith, give or take, was episode one? Oh, oh. Boom, boom, boom. I, I say that because I think it's like kind of a cool jumping off point. Yeah, that's well, I mean, like, well, let me ask you this. Like, if it were episode one, like, what would what would you do next? Like, would you do like the rise of the Empire or the, and the rebellion next? Or Yeah, I, I think that there's shades of the rebellion and the Empire both growing. Uh, and also, I think it would have to be Obi-Wan's story after that. And obviously, you know, George Lucas wanted it to be Anakin's story. But, yes. uh, I mean, I think that's sort of part of the reason the prequel tril- trilogy doesn't really work. It's it's tricky because, you know, on, on the one hand, like, I love the idea of being spared, uh, you know, one and two. <laughs> on, on the other hand, like, like I sort of, you know, see, you know, what he was going for in, in terms of the story. Like, that, that Anakin becoming Darth Vader is, like, really the big blockbuster moment. And I, I get, like, why, you know, he wanted to save that for last. It, at the same time, like, it does mean that, you know, you, you kind of, like, have the audience waiting around for, uh, you know, six years, basically, for the the cool stuff to, to start. And, you know, like, sitting through a lot of inane crap, frankly. And, you know, whereas, like, you know, with the original trilogy, it's like, from, from the get-go, you know, momentous galaxy-shaping events are, are happening. I mean, the the Death Star gets blown up in the very first movie. And then in The Phantom Menace, you know, what happens? Oh, you know, the the droid control ship gets broken in half. You know, it's it is not exactly, you know, a, a, a stellar beginning to, a, you know, a, a three part arc. So I, 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 I see I see the value in like what, what why you want Sith to be the first one. Right, right, and and I don't know. I mean, obviously, we'd be complaining about it regardless of what what it ended up being coming, but um, I mean, uh, to speak to your sort of you know uh, grandiose Death Star at the end of the movie sequence, I I think there there exists a world where it doesn't have to be as big. I mean, I think Mandalorian has proven that, and I don't want to spoil anything for people who haven't uh, watched it all. But the one thing I think Mandalorian does right, and the reason I think Mandalorian is the best thing to happen to Star Wars since the original trilogy, is I think it has a lot of smaller moments that are indicative of bigger things, even if you don't see the bigger things. And um, I, I think you could do that with a Star Wars movie, too. Yeah, obviously people go to see a Star Wars movie for you know blasts and, and laser sword fights and all that good stuff, but... Um, I don't know. I guess I'm circling around to say that maybe episode one and two are allowed to exist, but I wish they were better. Damn it. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's. I mean, I think I think that's a really that's a really good point. I think too. Like we should uh, we should maybe like make a di- di- distinction between like a, like like having you know a massive amount of, of spectacle and and having you know an event that's momentous enough for us to to care, you know, because like the, because the Clone Wars is a, a massive, massive conflict, you know, that's huge in spectacle, but, you know, ultimately we don't, you know, give a fuck because it's, it's anonymous CGI clones fighting anonymous, you know, CGI, uh, droids. And I think, you know, whereas like the destruction of the Death Star in A New Hope, like, you know, the, I mean, the special effects are great. You know, the Death Star is, you know, one of the, you know, coolest things in all of star wars you know as are the x-wings but the reason we we care is because uh 
like George Lucas very skillfully in the story, you know, you know, built up like, you know, injustice upon injustice where the, the rebels just keep losing, you know, throughout that first film. I mean, you know, from princess Leia being captured to the, you know, the murder of, of Owen and Brew to the destruction of Alderaan to the death of Obi-Wan to the, the death, you know, just to make things, you know, even worse of, uh, of, uh, of Biggs and, you know, poor Jack Porkins <laughs> in the battle of Yavin it's just things are at their lowest point and at the last second, you know, Luke makes the shot that counts and it, it's just vindication for all the death and destruction we've seen. And I think, uh, I think like that's ultimately like what the, what the prequels are, are, are lacking, like that level of a emotional investment. And that's, and that's why, you know, Revenge of the Sith works the best, you know, because we are invested. I mean, like by the end of that film, like, you know, you just like fucking hate Anakin and, and like, as disturbing as it is, like, seeing his, like, flesh burned, like, part of me by the end of that movie is, is like, yeah, I want him to, you know, suffer. You know, he's a serial killer by this point. Yeah, let it burn. <laughs> burn, baby, burn. No, I, I drive the point home all the time, but, um, yeah, the prequel trilogy, uh, all three, really, but but especially the first two, don't have stakes. Uh, the way like New Hope just keeps, like you said, keeps piling it on and you keep caring more and more. Whereas um, it doesn't really ultimately matter. The Clone Wars means, is that a train on my end or yours? Oh, sorry. That's my end. Yeah. Yeah. No, no worries. <laughs> <laughs> or the train. I was like, nice ambiance. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, oh, man. I lost my train of thought. See what I did there? What? <laughs> Thank you. I'll be here all night. Okay, let's get back on track. <laughs> okay, one more. No, just kidding. That, that's all I got. That's all I got. <laughs> Damn it. I should be a better conductor. Uh, no. No. Oh, I lost it. There's something there, though. There's a conductor pun here. <laughs> I think as much as we criticize Return of the Sith, we do end up sort of caring for the characters. Maybe not all of them, of course, but I, I do think we care about Obi-Wan and Anakin's friendship and 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 when we see Anakin hurt you feel bad and you see it as a tragedy but you're you're right you do also think good I'm glad this happened to him but but I think part of that is is everybody has the original trilogy in mind too and they think this is Darth Vader this is obviously the bad guy and yeah it's sad but he had it coming or this was inevitable this was destiny yeah yeah i think it's i think it's true i think you know we do have that feeling and and i think you're right i mean we do uh we do care more i mean you know and it's really kind of amazing like the the order 66 montage you know seeing jedi across the galaxy being slaughtered you know by the the clones like it, it's i mean it's still amazing to me how heart you know breaking you know that sequence is because you know, we really don't know a lot of those characters, you know, very well. Like, we're not, you know, super well acquainted with, like, you know, Kayati Mundu, Mundu or uh, Plo Koon or Aewa Sakura. And, and yet, you know, just, I don't know. I mean, that's a beautifully made sequence. And instantly, you know, you care about the, the loss of this, this ancient order that's, you know, trying to, you know, bring peace and justice into the galaxy and you care when you know obi-wan and yoda kind of make their last ditch attempts to you know keep a evil from completely overtaking good and i think uh i don't know yeah i mean it, it ultimately like you know 
it's a film like you have to respect on a on a on a certain level because it, it has a point to make and it, it goes to pretty bold lengths to make it. Though so you gotta admit though, the Order sixty six is pretty convenient for story structure. What happened to all the Jedi? Oh, they all died at the same time except a few. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong, it's 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 a great scene, but but I, I think it's also really neatly tying it up in a way that uh after watching it a thousand times feels a little false in the scheme of the entire Star Wars saga. Well, picture picture this. You know, imagine if it, instead of the the clones trying to carry out Order sixty six, it was the stormtroopers from uh, the original trilogy. You know, like <laughs> if if that were the case, I mean, they all um uh, would have uh, like uh, gone down like punks, like those uh, those clones, like Yoda decapitates on Kashyyyk in like two <laughs> seconds. <laughs> <laughs> No, but um, I, I I just mean to say it it it's very easy to just say all the Jedi were betrayed, but uh, I just I, I I can't believe in that in that turn. It, it 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 sort of makes it seem like all Jedi all Jedi are like goody two shoes that follow and hang out with their clone cop friends <laughs> and trust them. <laughs> I don't know. That's probably me being nitpicky, but, uh, yeah, you know, there it is. But, well, I mean, you know, yeah, let's, yeah, to be, uh, I mean, you, you definitely raise some, uh, some, some valid points and, and there is like, you know, a sense of, you know, since this is the third film and we didn't do a lot of the legwork and, you know, episodes one and two, we kind of have to, to tie up loose ends. So, you know, like the Jedi are supposed to be so powerful and, and yet, you know, Order 66 is this kind of convenient thing to like wipe them all out in in one foul swoop, which is, you know, I mean, you know, even though it's it's a beautifully done scene, like I, I have to admit, you are right. I mean, it is it is pretty absurd, you know, given what we know Jedi are, are capable of. I mean, let, let's, let's look at it this way, you know, like Luke would not have gotten killed in order 66, you know, Ray or, or Kylo Ren would not have gotten killed in uh, order 66. And not just because like, they're like three of the most powerful force users in the history of the galaxy. Like, no, because you know, different rules applied to those uh, characters. And in those movies, like, the Force was, you know, this all-powerful thing. And in Revenge of the Sith, you know, the Force is uh, all-powerful unless uh, uh, George needs to wipe out an entire group of characters to speed the story along. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, or that could have been a cool mystery. Like, whatever happened to those Jedi, you know? Yeah. Not just... It's, again, another sh another show-not-tell moment where... If they didn't have that and some of the main Jedi die, you could sort of assume, like, oh, maybe that happened to a lot of them. Uh, and also, you know, spin-off material. Yes, yes! <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I think it, it all comes down to inevitability. And everything they didn't, or everything they touched on in the first two movies had to be wrapped up and had to lead us to a new hope. So uh, it does seem to me like a lot of the movie is we have to finish what we started. And so you sort of can, can predict to some degree what's going to happen. Cause it's, it's not going to surprise you. You know, Anakin's not going to be like, you know what? You're right. I'm going to be a good father and not go to the lava town USA. <laughs> I, I forget the planet's name. I'm so sorry. Listeners. <laughs> I, well, first of all, I love, I love 
I love the idea of just calling Mustafar Lava Town USA. I think I think George Lucas <laughs> should have actually called it that. And yeah, I'm sure that was uh, they fixed that in post. And and uh, and second of all, I mean, you know, he had to tie up loose ends, and let's face it, like he did not even do a very good job of that. I mean, you know, we like according to Return of the Jedi, you know, Leia has supposed to have at least known Padme for part of her childhood and. Instead, we get, you know, Padme dying, uh, apparently of a a broken heart, because, you know, why the fuck not? <laughs> it's like, I don't know, I, I wish, you know, I, I wish George Lucas would have, you know, dotted his I's and crossed his T's, you know, a bit more neatly, you know? Uh, that, that is a convenient death, though. They, they could have done it differently, but it was, she needs to die before the movie's over, and it needs to be sad. I've got it. She's really sad and dies. The end. What, I, I mean, like, yeah, like, I don't understand, like, I mean, and this is getting into real, like, you know, inside nerd baseball, like the, the kinds of, you know, things I, I claim I don't want to get into, but, you know, I always get into anyway, you know, like, I, I don't understand, like, why, why couldn't, like, Padme have, uh, ha- have gone to, to Alderaan and there would, there would some, there would be some, like, sort of arrangement, like, you know, Bail Organa would, uh, would raise a, Leia, but like like Padme would like live there in secret and still be able to see Leia or something like I I or or also just don't tie all the ends up. Let there be loose ends, and the fans can figure it out themselves to some degree. That that's a very very good point. Yeah, I mean that's I mean isn't that what the expanded universe was for? You know, to the you know yeah yeah make a graphic novel about how you know Padme dies, but she had a really cool life for a couple of years or whatever yeah 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 she was just like chilling on Alderaan in some like you know secret wing of a a Bail Organa's like ice palace thing you know? it's a ice palace USA. You know, in the in the past, you know, I've been doing what we've been calling scene wars. You know, where I you know do a uh, you know kind of a monologue slash reflection on a particular scene. And and this time, I just uh, I found that you know, like I I didn't have a scene that I was particularly motivated to talk about, but I I did find that I had a a person who I wanted to talk about. So this is a I'm calling this faster, more intense inside the Star Wars actors studio. <laughs> so uh, yeah, this is a uh, this is this is my my piece for today. On August 11th, 1944, a baby boy was born in Carnesty, Tayside, Scotland. When he grew up, he would study clinical psychology at the University of Saint Andrews, but his true calling was to warp the mind, not enlighten it. Ian McDermott is many things, a star of stage and screen, a Tony winner, a hell of a good sport, but above all, he is Emperor Palpatine, the diabolical architect of the Republic's downfall. Palpatine may have obliterated the Jedi Order, but McDermott heroically made the worst of Star Wars worth watching. He played the character for three very different filmmakers, Richard Marquand, George Lucas, and J.J. Abrams, and did delicious work for each of them. Even Abrams's uh, widely reviled The Rise of Skywalker blossoms when McDermott fixes Daily Ridley with a sinister smile and declares, Long have I waited for my grandchild to come home! At the other end of the Sith spectrum, 
McDermott is a model of dazzling restraint in Revenge of the Sith. Good, Anakin, good. Kill him. Kill him now, Palpatine murmurs after Skywalker severs Count Dooku's hands. While many an actor would have de devoured that line as if it were a devil cheeseburger, McDermott utters it as casually as if he were ordering a glass of red wine. Even the domination of a galaxy demands decorum. McDermott is so delectably subtle as Chancellor Palpatine that it's almost disappointing when Revenge of the Sith calls for him to transform into the cackling and demented Emperor who first terrorized audiences in Return of the Jedi. Yet as an actor, he is incapable of being anything less than mesmerizing. In 2017, McDermott said, Of course, I don't want anyone else to play him, but his words for were unnecessary. No one else would dare. Yeah, you touched on so much about what I love about his performance. Because, um, yeah, I do think he's a highlight in a lot of stuff, even if some of the material he's given isn't my favorite. I mean, especially his sort of turn to being Emperor Palpatine. Like, like that scene is kind of silly. Yes, and, and, it is. And also to, to nitpick, it's like, wait, that was his first Force Lightning, and he's only done it a couple times? It, it seems like he turns... Uh, I don't like that when he uses the lightning, he immediately turns ugly and wrinkly and evil. I feel like that was a gradual thing over time, not a, oh, every time he does it, he gets a little uglier. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a great, that's a great point. I mean, like, I feel that, uh, I mean, you know, as, as a lover of Return of the Jedi, like, I have to say that, like, I, I, I have to say that peak Ian McDermott was, you know, in the, the throne room, you know, taunting Luke. But at the same time, like, you know, Chancellor Palpatine, like, subtly corrupting Anakin for the first half of Revenge of the Sith is just, just so good. Like, just, he is so, like, quietly evil and, and in a way, like, like, kind of insinuating and repressed that, you know, it's a, it's kind of like, you know, when, you know, he's going ballistic and, you know, going like, unlimited power. It's kind of like, <laughs> oh, man, you know. I liked the the guy who was just, you know, very, you know, calmly saying, you know, like, you know, if you were to become a wise leader, you must embrace a larger view, not just the dogmatic, narrow-minded view of the Jedi. Like, that's just, like, gold. Oh, sick burn. Fuck you, Jedi. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I mean, I'll, I'll say one more thing about him, which is that I, I just, I, I felt, like, kind of compelled to, like, sort of, like, dive into his performance because I'm, I'm just amazed by the fact that you know he's a star wars actor who it, it, it doesn't matter like you know which director he's working with or which trilogy you know he's in like he is always you know great like he is just he's so like strong-willed and that he can give you know a great performance even when he's you know surrounded by green screen and you know working with a you know a, a director you know really does not you know give actors the attention they need in, in the case of George Lucas it, like he's just he's so he's so unbelievably uh, alive he almost seems to succeed through like sheer force of will and I, I just think that's so you know remarkable that he in the prequels he does you know what no other actor was able to do you know other actors who are you know more you know famous than he is and and you know more successful at least commercially speaking and just i don't know like i think like honestly like a lot of the success of all the films is frankly uh 
down to him because even though Darth Vader is more iconic, you know, Palpatine is really, you know, the the, the villain of the in, entire saga. And, and the fact that, you know, his presence has such weight and that he's so just delightfully vile is uh, he's he's the... He's the really disgusting evil glue that, you know, holds <laughs> all the films together, ultimately. To this day, I think I still, like, want to like Revenge of the Sith, you know, more than I do. I think, you know, it's, you know, there's a certain amount of, like, nostalgia goggles that come into it. But, you know, the, the, movie, the movie is what it is. And, you know, it, it reaches some extraordinary highs. It hits some extraordinary lows you know i think i you know respect it in a lot of ways i think it's you know it's a very potent and very personal vision but like as a as a movie as a cinematic experience in and of itself like it's a it's still a lot of uh a lot of the a lot of the same flaws and and this is you know really harsh and and it may even be too harsh but i think there's truth in it like i saw a critic who wrote uh something to the effect of uh, the, the magic died a long time ago and to watch episode three is just a, a death twitch. And <laughs> I think, uh, I think that's not far off the mark is, you know, despite the number of admirable qualities that we've talked about that the film has, but, but what about you? Any, any final thoughts, Josh? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Ultimately the entire prequel trilogy falls flat when it ends with the return of the Sith. Uh, they, they had, George Lucas had to make the movie he wanted to make, and it was Anakin's story, so that's how the movie had to end. Um, and I just don't think it was the right choice. Um, I, as much as I enjoy the movie, there is a lot of nostalgia, and that can be said about all the Star Wars movies, but especially the prequel trilogy. Um, I, I think it's easy to shit on the prequel trilogy, and I hope that by talking about it, it's made people sort of think about um, maybe some redemption for it. I read that the um, I read the Ringer, and they uh, this last summer had sort of um, a few articles on uh, or in defense of the prequel trilogy. But I think they sort of fell flat for me as well. I, I don't think they really convinced me to appreciate the trilogy any more than I already have. Uh, I'm glad they exist. I'm glad that George Lucas set out to make them. Yeah, in my mind, I don't really see the prequel trilogies as canon exactly. But uh, I still... The moments when they're good are so good, and I'm so glad they exist. Well, yeah, like, I think the truth is, like, for me, like, any time, you know, I get to spend time in the Star Wars universe is a good time in the movies. And, you know, I, I do have affection for the the prequels at the the end of the day. And, you know, that's what it comes down to. I mean, I agree with you, Josh. I mean, I am, you know, glad they exist. And, you know, for all my quibbles, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to watch them again. (laughs) I was, I was a little overzealous. So I, I actually prepared a couple, so... <laughs> really? No, that's exciting. I um I will gladly make up one on the spot. But, um, yeah, why don't you go first, then? Buy me a minute. Okay, here, here, here's my first one. <laughs> Two Jedi have landed in the main hangar. We're tracking them now. That's uh, uh, that's one of my favorite uh, side characters, that, that one Nemoidian... Uh, uh, um, on the bridge of uh, General Grievous's 
ship. So <laughs> I've, I've always thought his voice was very distinctive and amusing. <laughs> oh, and then uh, and and then this will this is more familiar. Uh, Your swords, please. We don't want to make a mess of things in front of the chancellor. <laughs> That's good, Christopher Lee. Thank you. I think I think the secret to uh, the secret to Christopher Lee, and I can't do it, so I'm not going to, is to speak closer to the microphone, <laughs> and then you get those nice dulcet baritones. <laughs> I, I think that was pretty good. That was uh, that, that they had the they had the that was that was <laughs> it was supposed to be Christopher Lee without uh, Christopher Lee accent. <laughs> you got you got you got the Sith Sithly overtones there. I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's all about that that low end. Yeah, yeah. I sense a plot to destroy the Jedi. <laughs> the dark side of the Force surrounds the Chancellor. <laughs> if he does not, does not give up his emergency powers after the destruction of Grievous, then he should be removed from office. <laughs> the Jedi Council would have to take control of the Senate in order to ensure a peaceful transition. I always felt like Samuel L. Jackson in the Star Wars movies... Um, the way he read it, it was always just a little like fragmented, like he had the script with him and he just learned the lines. <laughs> you know, it's it's funny, you know, like as a kid, like I remember thinking, you know, Mace Windu is a uh, was so cool, and like now I watch the movies and it's like, my God, he seems like half asleep the whole time. I feel like he's just like, yeah, he's just like a fucking bureaucrat in the Jedi Council. Yeah, and he's a career politician. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, he has a cool lightsaber, and he's Samuel L. Jackson, but other than that, he's kind of a piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, it is, it's funny, too, like, when uh, when Anakin is like, you know, how can you be on the council and not be a master? And then, you know, Samuel L. Jackson just kind of, like, raises a hand and is like, take a seat, young Skywalker. And it's like, oh, he, like, raised his hand a couple inches, you know, that's how you know he means business. That puts Anakin in his place. <laughs> definitely. But no, I, I definitely think, yeah, even, even George Lucas couldn't, couldn't uh, help with that performance. It's fine. And it's sort of laconic and, and quiet and that's the character or whatever. But uh, anyway, I, I wanted to go out on a positive note and, uh, you know, just say that, that I'm glad that we could revisit these films. I hope they made some people think about some things and that hopefully we weren't too nitpicky. Well, these, these prequel uh, episodes, we've been kind of like, a, I feel like we've been like, like vandals, like, you know, breaking windows and stuff. And, and now we're going to be with the original trilogy, or at least I imagine we're going to be like, you know, like people like in church, like somberly, you know, praying on our knees to <laughs> this, uh, this perfect thing of beauty. I think I'm going to be stabbing some sacred cows. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, like, like the stormtroopers, I'm, uh, like, uh, uh, shooting at, uh, Owen and Baru until the flesh is literally lasered off their bones. <laughs> yeah. I, I think there's a super laser cannon that we just didn't know. About. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's gotta be. Well, um, I think that does it for us. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at I am Josh O. Ben, where can we find you? Uh, you can find me on uh, Twitter at T-H-O Bennett, and also I'm the host of the Spidey Scenes podcast. That's uh, spideyscenes.podbean.com is where you can download those episodes. Uh, and uh, sometimes I'm joined by a very fine gentleman named Joshua Rourke, so come check us out. I'm Joshua Rourke. This has been at Campbell Ferguson. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. And the Force will be with you. 
always. Just that moment uh, in Attack of the Clones when he says to Yoda, I've become more powerful than any Jedi. Even <laughs> That's a you. pretty good Christopher Lee. <laughs>